I'm very excited to be looking with you over the coming months at Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most rich, in my opinion, and amazing passages in the Bible. In fact, I go so far as to say that it's one of the most important literary pieces in Western culture. Just think about how many phrases from this um, sermon are familiar to us who follow Jesus and are also well-known in the broader culture even. Blessed are the peacemakers, salt of the earth. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Go into your prayer closet. Our Father who art in heaven, do not judge or you will be judged. Take the plank out of your own eye first. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. These are just some of of the familiar phrases which are found in this sermon. There are some very important leaders and thinkers and and movements that they led who've been deeply influenced by this sermon. Just to name the most obvious, Mahatma Gandhi, Leo Tolstoy, Martin Luther King Jr., And yet, despite the the profound, world-changing, and culture-shaping impact that this sermon has had over the centuries, many in the church have worked very hard to discount and to distance themselves from this sermon. I mean, can't you understand why? In places, if you've read it, this sermon is radical, it's uncomfortable, it's demanding. And so, many Christians have said, we don't really need to take this sermon too seriously. And they've given a few different reasons for this. Let me mention two. Some have gone the route of saying that this sermon applies only to the kingdom of God when Jesus is physically present on the earth. In other words, this sermon applied to Jesus' first disciples, but now that Jesus has left us and returned to heaven, this demanding kingdom vision that's contained in the sermon has been put on pause And it doesn't apply right now because we live by grace. The sermon will apply again someday in the future when Jesus returns to set up his earthly kingdom in the millennial age. Others have gone another route and they have said, let's face it, this sermon is impossible. Jesus wasn't really thinking that we could live this way. He was just laying down the law so thick and heavy to show that we're hopeless sinners and to get us to realize we need God's grace. And once we realize this and we recognize that we're sinners and we flee to God's grace, then this sermon has done its work. And whether we actually live it or not isn't really the issue. I have just two problems with both of these approaches. The first problem I have is how Jesus ends this sermon. He ends it by telling a little parable about two men who built houses, one on the sand and one on the rock. And you may know the story. The storms come up against both of those houses and one falls while the other stands. And Jesus concludes, anyone who hears these words of mine, he's talking specifically about the Sermon on the Mount, and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. It seems to me that Jesus really believes it's important that we take this sermon seriously. The second problem I have with discounting this sermon 
is how Jesus ends his whole earthly life. If we go all the way to the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, we find what is often called the Great Commission. It's the last thing Jesus says to his disciples. And in it, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Two things. Baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey what? Everything I have commanded you. And what did Jesus command them? Well, this sermon, for starters. It seems pretty clear to me that as far as Jesus was concerned, to be a follower of him, to be a disciple, means to put this sermon into practice. So as we look at this sermon this fall, I, for one, am going to take it seriously. And I hope you will too. I think I know, though, why this sermon is so hard to take seriously. And that is because it seems to turn the world upside down. I mean, isn't what Jesus asks of us in this sermon really extreme? I have heard people write this sermon off and say it's not realistic. It's not practical in the real world. As the famous missionary to India, E. Stanley Jones, put it, it feels like it's trying to give human nature a bent it will not take. (laughs) Well said. Maybe you've experienced that when you've read the sermon. I know others who would never dare to say out loud these things, but they think it. They, They live their life as if the sermon doesn't matter. I take a different view, however. I don't think this sermon turns the world upside down. I'm convinced that it actually turns the world right side up. I'm convinced that this sermon is a profound, brilliant, and desperately needed vision of what it takes to fix our broken world. In fact, I would go so far as to say that there is no other way. That living out this sermon is the only hope for the future of our world. Granted, in seeking to live out this sermon, we will fail many times along the way. I do. And granted, we will need a lot of help from Jesus and Jesus' spirit to do this. I sure do. But this sermon really lays out the only way of life that can turn this world right side up again. I'm convinced it paints a picture of the life we were created for and are being saved for a life of serious love and true goodness. In fact, the way of life that this sermon describes is the only way that we can ultimately flourish as human beings and live the good life. Now hear me, I'm not saying a better world will come easily, or that this flourishing will come quickly, or that there won't be troubling or suffering along the journey. But we'll get into all that as we dig into the sermon. Before we do, let me just give you the context in which Jesus delivers the sermon. As Matthew tells the story of Jesus, Jesus has recently come onto the scene. He has begun his ministry proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus has called some disciples to follow him. And then we read this summary, summary, which was read this morning. Picture this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, the area he grew up in, in northern Palestine, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, 
and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The good news about Jesus spread all over Syria, that's up to the north of Palestine, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and Jesus healed them. Large crowds from every direction, from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, they followed him. Can you picture this happening? Jesus is proclaiming that God's kingdom is finally coming. That God is finally stepping into history to fix our broken world. To overturn the forces of evil and oppression and to make things the way they should be. And to prove it, Jesus is healing people right and left. He's setting them free of their spiritual bondages and entanglements. He's demonstrating the reality of God's kingdom, bringing it to life and into being right in the lives of real people. And people are swarming to him from all over. And so then, what does Jesus do? He sees the crowds. He goes up on a mountain. His disciples come to him. And he begins teaching them. Who's Jesus teaching? Well, by the end of the sermon, it's clear it's, it's the disciples and the crowds who hear the sermon and are going to comment on it. All of those who are attracted to him, who hear the good news that God's kingdom has come near and who have seen and experienced healing and deliverance. So, so notice what comes first. Jesus preaches good news. Jesus gives them the kingdom, healing them, setting them free. Then second, he teaches them how to live the life of this new kingdom. In other words, this sermon isn't a list of moral requirements that you must meet in order to earn the right to get in on what Jesus has to offer. This sermon is rather a vision for how you live the new life that Jesus is already offering you. Has that been any of your experience where God comes into your life in a wonderfully gracious way first, meets you where you're at, wins your heart, invites you into his salvation, and then Jesus begins to say, now let's see how this salvation is going to change your life. As God goes to work on your life and, and you realize your life is getting turned right side up as you respond to what God is telling you to do and to be. Of course, at any point you can bail out on the process. As Jesus reveals more of what it means to, to follow him, you can say, wait, that isn't what I signed up for. I mean, healing's fine, but, but the good news fine, but this is getting too intense and I'm out. And we'll have the opportunity to bail out too as we get into the sermon over the coming weeks. All right, well, without further ado, let's dive in. This morning and next Sunday, we'll begin by looking at the eight statements at the beginning of the sermon. They're popularly called the Beatitudes. And they all follow the same formula. Blessed are the blank because theirs is or will be the blank eight times. So before we get into the content of each Beatitude, let's make sure we understand this, this formula, what it is and how it works. Let me correct two common misconceptions about what the Beatitudes are and then let me explain what they actually are. First, the Beatitudes are not commands or moral formulas. As an example, take blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The Beatitude is not saying, 
if you are pure enough in heart, then you will see God. It's also not saying, be pure in heart, because otherwise you won't see God. A beatitude is not a rule or a command. Second, a beatitude is not a blessing. I know the first words of the Beatitudes are often translated blessed. But Jesus is not blessing people here. The Greek word that's used here does not mean that. He's not saying, is anyone out there pure in heart? Blessed are they. Yes, I see that hand. Bless you, my son. That's not what Jesus is doing. That's not what a Beatitude is. Which is why some translators suggest that happy is a better translation than blessed here. Let me see if I can explain. A beatitude is a wisdom saying. It's a kind of saying which people back then were familiar with. There were beatitudes in the Old Testament, and the Greeks living at the time of Jesus had their beatitudes too. In fact, I still remember my first month of of college, my freshman year. I had been a math and science guy, and I am in a philosophy class reading Socrates and Aristotle. And I'm expecting it to be super heavy, right? But what I find to my surprise is that these philosophers are talking about and debating something really relevant and practical. And that is what true happiness is. Happiness, I care about that. (laughs) Um, What they're debating, though, wasn't so much how you could feel happy all the time, but rather what kind of life would be a happy life, would be a good life. What kind of life was the life that that everyone wants? A life where you flourish. That's what they were debating. And this was a big debate at that time. The the Epicureans were out there, and, and they said that the good life was found in partying and eating and drinking and grabbing all the pleasure you could. And the Stoics said, no, that won't make you happy. The the person who truly has a happy life is the person who isn't driven by those desires, but who learns to be at peace with whatever is. Because then they're content and they're satisfied no matter what happens. So that's the Stoics. Well, from what I can remember of, of Socrates and Aristotle, remember I was a math and science guy at the time, I forget which of them it was, or it was both of them that said this, but they argued that happiness is found in being good. If you're truly good on the inside, you will find that you enjoy a good life on the outside. So anyway, this is the background of the Beatitudes. A Beatitude is a wisdom saying. It's an observation about life that's, that's weighing in on this important philosophical question, a practical question too, uh, that we all ask, which is how to find real happiness and how to live a good life. Don't we all ask that question? So the first word of every beatitude, often translated blessed in our Bibles, is a word which describes living the good life, a flourishing life. And it has a note of of congratulations in it as well. It carries the idea of good for you. You have made it. You are living the life others should envy. Or or as one of my favorites, uh, one one preacher put it, you lucky bums. (laughs) You get the idea. What Jesus is offering here is his wisdom on how to have the happy life we all want and we all seek in different ways. Okay, one more observation about the Beatitudes in general before we uh, dive into the specific ones. 
And that is that Jesus' eight Beatitudes aren't describing eight different types of people. No, rather, together they're painting a picture of one type of person, of one type of life. Not that everyone that the Beatitudes describe will have all eight of these qualities to the same degree, but rather that in general, the flourishing ones, the fortunate ones, the lucky bums, will tend to have these eight qualities. Likewise, with the second part of the Beatitudes, the eight blessings that those enjoying the good life enjoy aren't totally eight totally different blessings, but rather they're different aspects or facets of the same life, the same good fortune, the same happiness. All right, so now we're ready to look at the Beatitudes themselves. And get ready and fasten your seatbelts. Because these are radical. These turn the world upside down. The world then and the world now. Because Jesus is claiming here that the kingdom of God has come into, to, or has come, sorry, that the kingdom of heaven that he has come to bring will bring down the high and comfortable and will raise up the lowly and the needy. It's a great reversal of who gets the good life. The author Richard Rohr says, I've always wondered why people never want to put a stone monument of the eight Beatitudes on the courthouse lawn instead of the Ten Commandments. But then he says, I realized that the eight Beatitudes of Jesus would probably not be very good for any war, for any macho worldview, for the wealthy, or for our consumer economy. E. Stanley Jones, again, famous missionary in the early 1900s, tells a story from his time in British India. One day he recounts, I was addressing an audience of Hindus and Muslims and was interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. Before me sat two secret service police, taking down shorthand notes of what I was saying to be sent to the government to see if anything seditious could be found in it. A Christian government sends Hindu and Muslim agents to find out if the Sermon on the Mount is seditious. It is, he says. Then he goes on and he lists who it's seditious to. To the modern economic order, to the militarists, and even sadly, sometimes, to the church. Let's take a look at the specific Beatitudes and see what Jones means. Look at who Jesus lists in the first four Beatitudes. Look at who he claims are the ones who get to enjoy the good life. The poor in spirit. I'll explain what that means in a second. Those who mourn. Those who are meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Really, Jesus? These are the flourishing ones? I thought it was the wealthy and the powerful and the A-list celebrities. I mean, as Dire Straits sang back in the 1980s, look at them yo-yos, that's the way you do it. Play the guitar on the MTV. That ain't working, that's the way you do it. Get your money for nothing and your chicks for free. Jesus says, no, that's not actually the way you do it. (laughs) The good life actually belongs to a very different sort of person. It belongs, first of all, to the poor in spirit. Now, who are the poor in spirit? Well, it's those whose attitudes and whose perspectives, whose inner hearts are best pictured as like a beggar on a street corner. 
The person who knows they can't make it on their own. They know they need help. And they're not afraid to ask for help and to receive help. They have no illusions of grandeur. They're not self-made people or self-sufficient people. These are the poor in spirit. And these, Jesus says, are the ones who have it made. Why? Because a new kingdom is coming. A new reality. A new order, which is God's way. And the poor in spirit have open hands and welcoming hearts to receive it. Not the self-sufficient. Not the self-satisfied. Not those who sing with Mike Sin- or Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. No, the needy, the hungry, the dependent on the inside. These are the ones who are able to receive and embrace what Jesus offers and what Jesus is doing in the world. Such people, Jesus says, are the fortunate ones. Who else has it made? Those who mourn, Jesus says. Again, really, Jesus, those who mourn? You are going to have to turn the world upside down for that to happen. Now, let me try to bring some clarity on this one. When Jesus says those who mourn, he is most likely referring to a specific sort of person. You see, Jesus is likely drawing on Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, in several of the Beatitudes, including this one, which is why we read it earlier. Listen again as I just highlight some of the phrases from Isaiah 61 picked up in the Beatitudes. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. These words from Isaiah, you might know, were originally addressed as good news to the exiles in Babylon. During that dark period of Israel's history, when they were suffering in captivity and dislocation, and they were mourning because of their suffering, and they were mourning because of their sins which had placed them there. And you may know that in the time of Jesus, God's people were were still suffering under the oppression of a mighty empire. It was Rome by that point. And now Jesus says to them, echoing Isaiah's words, your comfort is coming. You will be comforted because your exile is coming to an end. Your suffering will soon be over. Your sin will be atoned for. Your salvation is at hand. And so it's those who mourn as if they're strangers and they're aliens in a strange land who are blessed. It's those who have not assimilated to to the ways of the world, who have not embraced Babylon and its long line of successors, who have not settled in to to enjoy all the empire can provide. It's rather those who who still remember who they are and, and who they belong to and who mourn and who wait for God to come and set them free and restore them. Fortunate are you, Jesus says, because your comfort is coming. Third, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And here Jesus is quoting Psalm 37, verse 11. The meek will inherit the land. The the word for meek in Psalm 37 is is used of of the righteous poor, the, the powerless, the needy, the oppressed, who put their hope and their trust in God to deliver them. 
those who get pushed around by by the rich and powerful. Really, Jesus, these are the ones who are the lucky bums? (laughs) They're not those we expect to inherit anything, let alone the whole earth, because usually the meek have no inheritance. They have no no savings or estate to pass on. They live hand to mouth. The the meek are not the corporate CEOs, but but, but the lady who, who, who cleans their penthouse offices and secretly prays for them at night. Or the immigrants who do their laundry. The meek are not the, the world leaders who decisions shape the world, but, but the nameless, faceless workers whose lives get affected by those decisions. The, the meek are the humble. They're, they're the gentle. They're the, the harmless. These are the flourishing ones, Jesus says. Why? Because they will inherit the earth. The meek, not the powerful. The meek, not the rich. The meek, not the self-sufficient. The meek, not the arrogant. God is giving the future to the meek. Wow. Jesus goes on. Blessed, fortunate, flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what we need to know about this word righteousness is that it can mean several things depending on the context. If the context is internal, it can mean your character and your behavior. Do you obey God's law? Are you a good and a godly person? Are you righteous? But when the context is external, around you, righteousness can mean justice. It's when things are put right, when governments do what's right. In relation to God, righteousness is when God puts things right. It's when God steps in to save and to help those who cry out to him. And so question, is this beatitude about those who hunger and thirst to be righteous themselves? Or those who hunger and thirst for there to be righteousness and justice for for them and for their land? Or is it both? Well, what do the poor in spirit hunger for? What do the meek hunger for? What do those who mourn hunger for? Well, they surely pray, God, make me a better person. Help me to trust you and to honor you, even when I'm struggling. Yet they also cry out, how long, O Lord, till you step in and save us? How long until you have pity on us? How long until you bring justice and you make things right? How long until you turn the world upside down? Until you bring down the high and lofty and you lift up the lowly. And Jesus says, you lucky bums, how fortunate you are. Your hunger will be filled. So that's just the first four Beatitudes. Can you take any more? (laughs) Can you see how radical all of this is? How it turns the world upside down? Remember Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor could really get on board with this. This sounds like the stuff of liberation theology for the poor. Or to put it in terms of Jesus' day, this is something the zealots could love. Those revolutionaries at the time of Jesus who longed to throw off the oppression of Rome and the upper class and to bring about freedom and deliverance for the poor and the oppressed. 
Not so fast, though, because guess what? There are four more Beatitudes coming. And Jesus is about to nail you, if you think that way, (laughs) not with blessed are the brave revolutionaries, those who risk their lives to set others free, who take up the struggle for justice. No, what does Jesus say? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in spirit, or pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Wow, think about that. How is the world going to get turned right side up? How are those at the bottom going to get lifted up? Look to those who show mercy. Look to the pure in heart. Look to the peacemakers. Look to the persecuted. What, Jesus? Now you're turning the world upside down all over again. Now even the lowly are confused about how this is going to happen. Because Jesus is saying those at the bottom will, will, will come out on top not by tipping the scales themselves, not by beating the powerful at their own game, not by rising up and seizing power, but by living a very different way, a way of mercy, a way of peace, a way of weakness and vulnerability where you get persecuted for doing it, a way that might get you nailed to a cross. Somehow, through this upside-down way of living and being in the world, Jesus is going to turn the world upside down. As Jesus' followers extend mercy to those who wrong them, as they make peace instead of war, and as they get persecuted for it, somehow they will flourish and be blessed and come out on top. In other words, listen carefully. By living the right-side-up life in an upside-down world, we will turn the world right-side-up. Or God will through us. Well, wow, we're out of time. (laughs) So this is to be continued next week. Um, But, uh, and we'll have to continue to try to make sense of it all. But let me just leave you with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. I've already paraphrased this a number of times, but here it is one last time the way Chesterton said it. He said, when you first read the Sermon on the Mount, it feels like it turns everything upside down. But as you read it more closely, you discover that it actually turns everything right side up. So I'd encourage you to read it this week, at least to read the Beatitudes, to meditate on them, and to ask God to begin to help you see how this turns everything right side up.